Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back. This is why we exist, Shahan. It's a playoff show. It's the national championship game. We're making our predictions here for TCU versus Georgia. But before we do it, I think it's worthwhile, Shahan, to attempt to preemptively put a TCU national championship in context. And just looking back, I mean, I think everybody knows this, but it's not going to stop me from saying it. TCU preseason AP poll did not get a vote, did not get a point. 47 teams got at least a vote for 25th, including Nebraska. Nebraska got one point in the preseason AP poll. So there's a top 25. There's a next 22. And the fighting horn frogs were nowhere to be found in that list. Seventh in the preseason Big 12 media poll. Baylor, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, Kansas State, Iowa State, who finished last. And then TCU. Shahan, would this be in contention for the unlikeliest football champion in the history of the National Collegiate Athletic, what is it? Association. Association. (laughs) So uh, I I think there's two ways to look at this. First, there is the unified national championship era, right? Like where we have the BCS, where we have the CSP, and there's just nothing even close. Like not, not even in the remote, like vicinity of anything. I'd say that maybe the, well, in the playoff era, the quote unquote most unlikely national champion we've ever had from the preseason was probably like 2019 LSU, maybe, who kind of came from being pretty good to like the greatest ever. Uh, 2014 Ohio State, uh, you know, kind of had to figure some things out before they entered the playoff and came in as a four seed. But like, that's kind of the list. <laughs> you know, I, I think that. I think that even just at this point, TCU is far and away the most unlikely team to win a playoff game, much less win the national championship. Uh, and then you get to the pre, uh, you know, to the BCS pre playoff era. I mean, 2010 Auburn was obviously just like kind of a crazy storm of, of things that happened, you know, but I think that TCU is certainly more unlikely than, than signing Cam Newton, who just happens to be the best player ever. And, before that, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know where you go with this, right? Like, I think I have a line that I would draw. Okay. I think it would be the most unlikely since 1990, at least, which is the year Georgia Tech and Colorado split the national title. And again, you're talking about the unified era. This is pre the unified era. That year, Colorado did not get a single vote in the preseason AP poll. And Georgia Tech was 34th in the preseason AP poll, and they are both like programs. I mean, Georgia Tech beat somebody 222 to nothing one time, I guess, so that's kind of (laughs) good. But other than that, neither of those teams historically would rise to the level of a team that you would necessarily think about at a national championship level, and certainly since then have not been at a national championship level. So I think – I actually think TCU is probably a better football program than those two because TCU has actually been – very relevant in recent years, just not to this level. So that's, I think it would be that, I think TCU would probably be a less unlikely champion than those two. But that's, that. I think that's the, that's how far back I would go to get a similarity. Yeah, well, and, and it's so hard to, to like truly understand and contextualize that comparison to get in a pre-unified national championship era because the thing is right like you have uh in 1990 I'm, I'm i'm looking at georgia tech schedule from that year right they played number one virginia which also what number one virginia on november 3rd 1990 but like then they didn't have to play another team that was ranked higher than 15th the entire season right like whereas tcu now has to go and play two top four teams to have a chance to win a national championship. Right. And so like now that that's not to say that Georgia Tech's national championship isn't a hundred percent legitimate and heck yeah, Georgia Tech and Colorado go claim your national championships. That's awesome. But you know, I, I do think that there's a level of difficulty while, while TCU, I agree uh, has been a better program than Georgia Tech or Colorado over the last 10 or 20 years. 
I mean, they have to do something that I think is quite a bit more difficult than some of those pre-Pole era teams, right? Another one that came up was uh, was like 1984 BYU, right? And, and BYU in 1983 was a good team, so it's not like they came out of nowhere. But certainly, you know, to, to go win the national championship was pretty unlikely. Uh, they played number three Pitt in the first week of the season and then didn't play another ranked team the entire season, right? They were just kind of the last undefeated team left. So, like, this this is kind of what we run into in the poll era, right? And in the pre-BCS era is just these strange stories where somebody just has a chance, right? Like, I mean, I'm curious uh, – is TCU, and I think that they were by, I think they were named national champion by some outlets, but like, is TCU considered a team with a more legitimate national championship case in like 2010 if we're still in a non BCS era where we don't have a national championship game? You know, I, I'm curious how that would have changed the dynamics. So when you look at, at 1990, for instance, uh, Colorado was number one going into bowl season. Played number five Notre Dame in the Orange Bowl. Colorado beat Notre Dame ten to nine. Okay, <laughs> and uh, again, back in the era where there wasn't a playoff and you had associations between conferences setting things up, Georgia Tech played in the Citrus Bowl and beat number nineteen Nebraska forty five twenty one. So you wind up with a split national title between the AP poll and the coaches poll. For instance, there's a number four Miami team sitting there, which is sort of like getting getting ready, like is in the midst, sort of like in between of like being Miami and being Miami again. And Miami lost to Notre Dame that year. So, you know, Colorado beat the team that beat Miami. Miami lost to BYU to open the season. But like you didn't have to go through them at the end and be like, okay, well, they lost a couple of things, but you're going to meet them. They're going to be a heck of a four seed in the playoff, right? You didn't have to deal with that kind of thing. So it is a very different thing. And I will say this, that as I have come around in every single way on the 12-team playoff, there was a time maybe three or four years ago where I wasn't there. One of the things, it was not a primary concern of mine, but that I wondered about is the idea of having a college football national champion that maybe didn't have the didn't prove during the regular season that it was the best team because maybe they get in as an eight or a nine seed and then now they start beating people. And it's like, oh man, that's going to be kind of weird because like we've never had that before. What we have had is, for instance, 1984 BYU, maybe these teams in 1990, where you get to the end of the year because you're not in a unified playoff scenario, you don't have to play the next best team. You just create resumes by playing more good teams, but you don't have to, you don't have a showdown on the field. But I wondered about the idea of, oh, a team that had like a good but not great regular season, and now you get in. TCU did have a great regular season in results. I don't know that TCU every single week showed they are a great team. They were a team that found a way to win. But as we sit here right now, TCU beat Michigan in a heck of a game. And if TCU beats Georgia, I don't, I'm not going to have any percent of like, oh, I don't know. Did they really deserve it? It's going to be like they beat Michigan and Georgia. They earned it. So that shows me that in the 12-team playoff, if I thought I might ever have a thing in the back of my head of like, oh, that team kind of backed in and then made a run. This is showing me no, because the point is you made the run. We've lived in a world where, hey, congratulations, Georgia Tech. You beat number 19, Nebraska, in your final game and you got a share of a national title. That's not how it is anymore. You, Whatever you do, however you get in, even if you back in, you can't back in through the playoff. You earn it through the playoff. So hundred percent TCU will be a absolutely deserving national champion. And it reassures me of like, if there was any last little thing in my head about a 12 team playoff, it's gone. Cause man, you can't beat these, these, you can't line up two good wins against two good teams like this and have any questions. And in a 12 team playoff, you're going to be lining up either three or four wins. No, I mean, and I think it's, I think it's great context to go look back at some previous national champions because the reality is, like you said, if, if TC was inconsistent, uh, you know, which they were, they were good. They went 12 and 0 in the regular season and lost an overtime in the title game. Like they had a very good regular season. But if they had an, a pretty good regular season and then came in and beat two of the top four teams in the country, that is frankly more than what most national champions did for a hundred years, right? Most teams didn't have to do that for 
eternity in college football. They kind of just had to be in the right place at the right time. And then they might still claim a national championship that other people didn't recognize. And, you know, it gets all it gets all crazy out here. Right. And so uh, I think that, again, we underestimate because because one of the thoughts that we keep coming back to and, and this is this is very much us as a as a collective college football consciousness having Bama brain and just being like, Alabama might be anybody on any given day and and win every game, right? Like that's kind of how we think about Alabama and for good reason. Uh, the reality is, I mean, if you as, you know, whatever, Ohio State who gets in a year that they're not as great as the eight seed, right? You have to beat like five teams in the top 12 to win the national championship. That's, that's a lot. I, I think that we are totally underestimating the idea of having to play an extra game against a top 12 opponent because you look at you look at Michigan playing against uh you know a top five team you look at Ohio State struggling against a top five team you look at you know the, the reality is most of these top 10 teams are at least good enough on the right day to beat each other and so if you go through and you win all of them I mean that's that's what it's about right I mean that is that is again frankly far more impressive than what national champions were asked to do in basically any other era. We'll get in the offseason more into my let them lose way of thinking, which is a big part of my 12-team playoff thing, which goes into this. But again, like the way Alabama played against Kansas State, if that was a, you know, whatever, a 5, that was a 6-11 matchup or something, and Bama was the 11, and then it was like, okay, watch out. Here comes Bama. But Bama still would be the Bama that lost to LSU, that almost lost to Texas, that played a bunch of close games. And so either Bama, if it was now getting ready to play a game in a quarterfinal against somebody who had a better regular season than them, in the end, you would either refute your regular season by stringing together four great wins. And then I think by the time Alabama would be lifting the trophy, I'm not sure we'd be hung up on Man, if Quinn Ewers didn't get hurt in the Texas game, they would have <laughs> lost that game. It's like, yeah, but look who they just beat four times in a row. Or if you've been an inconsistent team that has high peaks and low valleys and plays a bunch of close games in the regular season and loses some of them, then you're probably not going to win four in a row against great competition. So then who cares? So you're either going to refute it or be taken down by it, but you can't back your way through three or four playoff games. Thank you, TCU, for the clarification. <laughs> well, and, and let's remember, right? So let's say that uh, we had a 12-team playoff this year. I, I'm not going to try to reseed. Let, let's just say that Alabama was the five seed. Uh, Alabama would have to play number 12 Tulane, who just beat USC. Like, they'd beat, they, they'd beat Tulane. They're a better matchup than USC is for Tulane. But, like, Tulane wasn't nobody, right? They, they found a way to win games. In the second round, they'd have to play Ohio State. In the third round, they'd have to play Georgia, and then in a potential national championship game, they'd potentially have to play TCU. Like, I don't know, man. That's a lot. That's that's for anybody. That's a lot. And I understand they're Alabama. And again, we we get Bama brain. We just assume that when Bama plays a team and wants to be there and wants to play, that they're going to beat them every single time. Well, again, I, I think the idea of... Losing in the second round, for example, against Ohio State would actually be more like like would be a bigger deal for us in terms of rethinking the way that we look at college football than if they just didn't make the field whatsoever and played in the Sugar Bowl. I, I think that would be much more significant and I think that would be much better for college football. And and again, I, I just think that a lot of the things that we get hung up on are probably not actually going to matter when we get into a 12 team playoff. Okay, so we wanted to add some context. We're going to start breaking down this game. I want to say, first of all, that it is a 13 and a half point line at the moment as we record on Wednesday morning. George is favored by 13 and a half. The total is 62 and a half in a world where the TCU Michigan game total in the end was 96 and the Georgia Ohio State game was 83. So 62 and a half in that context seems kind of low. And then you think, oh, 31-28, that'd be a good competitive game. Oh, but that'd be under. So I'm, I'm curious what <laughs> we think about like the game script of how this might go. And then the one thing I want to leave us with before we come back, the last four national title games, the winning margins, 28, 17, 28, and 15. So in the eight years of the playoff, Ohio State handled Oregon pretty well in the first one, one by 20. 
the last four years, last year's game between Georgia and Alabama was the closest. And listen, that was closer until the receiver injuries for Alabama caught up to them and that kind of thing. It wasn't like that was a blowout the whole game. But we've only had three one-score games in the national title game in the playoff era. It's the two Bama Clemson games in year two and year three, and then the overtime game, the double overtime game for Georgia and Alabama. So we haven't had like a down to the wire in a world where whew, we just had two awesome semis. We haven't had a national title game like that in five years. So it would be interesting if we get that. Will we? We'll figure that out next on the College Football Survivor Show. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. You have to be well coached and you have to know what you need to do if you're going to run this system. When this system comes forward, man, like it's a really good system. And I think that it is one of the more versatile systems in college football because it allows you to attack the run-in gaps. It allows you to attack passing offenses in the quick passing game by having an extra DB on the field. It's a really good system. And I think that a lot of coaches will be looking at what Joe Gillespie did and wonder, you know, look, when we have to play different styles of defense, is this the kind of system that allows us a lot of flexibility? I would wear a TCU defense t-shirt that said, you can't handle the angles. I would wear that. <laughs> and the second thing is like, can you imagine if you went to arm wrestle, it's like Olululu Timmy's like, all right, let's arm wrestle. Here we go. Put your hand up here. And you put your hand up and there's no other hand there. And then two people grab your elbow and you're like, what are we doing here? This isn't yeah. fair. But within the rules of arm wrestling by that sanctioning body (laughs) two people grabbing your elbow is legal and you're like but it's not arm wrestling and they're like exactly subscribe now on apple Podcasts for exclusive college survivor show bonus episodes Douglas maurice back with shahan j haraja we always appreciate you guys making the college football survivor show part of your week we'll continue to have shows in the off season if you're coming to this show because the playoff is happening maybe you haven't listened before like oh it's a playoff show i guess when the playoffs over they don't do any more shows that's wrong we do we're not we're going to take a week off at some point because we all need to take a week off but we do this year round and we do two shows a week year round we have a bonus episode for apple podcast subscribers um, you pay three ninety nine a month. You get those. No, is it three? No, it's two ninety nine a month. For three bucks, you get seventy five cents a show. You get four bonus episodes every month. Maybe one month you'll get three if we take a week off. But it's still a pretty good deal. We did that this week. We did the lessons we learned from the four semifinal teams. So that's where we talked more about Michigan and Ohio State here today. We're talking about the teams that are left. So we w- we would invite you to be an Apple Podcast subscriber and go listen to that. And then you get this free show every week. We're going to do a lot of context. Last last offseason, we did, um, what did we do? Like the Mount Rushmore of different position groups and stuff in the playoff era. I have some other offseason ideas that we can delve into. We like doing lists. We like doing historical things. We like doing context. Um, we still have some, we still have what if Nick Saban was the head coach at West Virginia, which we never got into fully. <laughs> That's in the back pocket. We'll, we'll see what if Sonny Dykes was the, went to a different program. We could do that with Sonny Dykes, give Sonny Dykes to 30 different programs. What if Sonny Dykes had gone to Nebraska last off season? I will tell you what, there was some reporting that came out uh, in the middle of the season that apparently Texas athletic director Christel Conti, Sonny Dykes was his guy, was like, was his guy during the Sark search. And then the boosters were like, no, we want Sark. And so uh, I'm sure uh, everybody feels great about that decision right about now. So, so, so let's do two minutes on that. <laughs> For real. I mean, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is, we own this conversation. Texas as a playoff team? Is it that – because, listen, TCU also lost some guys out of the portal. Yeah. Right? After last season. Zach Evans and some other guys. They they lost both of their defensive ends and their top running back. Like, they lost more to the portal, arguably, than they gained. Did, was there lingering, lurking national championship caliber talent on TCU in a way that there wasn't on Texas – or Sonny Dykes and his staff, would they have gotten the best out of Texas the way they've gotten the best out of this TCU roster? Like how much of this is coaching? Not just Sonny Dykes, but Garrett Riley and Joe Gillespie, who you have also talked up deservedly so as well. But that goes to the head coach. When you're a head coach, really, the number one thing you do is hire a staff. It's the most important thing you do is hire a staff. 
ready to roll. Could this have happened at Texas in the same way with Sonny Dykes and these guys? So the one thing that I'll say is that I think that TCU in some ways was very prepared for a flip because of what they had kind of dealt with for the last two decades in terms of coaching style, right? Like they hired the opposite personality. Gary Patterson was a full control, always in your face, kind of a culture of fear type coach. And Sonny Dykes is a super laid back coach, wants to let people do their job. And, and I think that you see some of the benefits of that with how loose this team plays, with how free this team plays. Uh, and, and I do have questions in some ways about whether that's possible at Texas, because I think you're fighting against so many cultural forces, right? So, so much uh, of outside people kind of trying to come in and, and, uh, and cause issues. But, you know, from a pure football perspective, there's no question that Sonny Dykes could have immediately flipped Texas into a team that was competitive. Now, could they have been 12 and one and playing in the college football playoff? I mean, again, I, I think that you're fighting against some forces in that room. I think that one thing that uh, that TCU did have going for it is they had some pretty good pieces on the offensive line, including uh, Steve Avila, who is an All-American now, and Texas was kind of rebuilding a little bit. But, I mean, come on. It, it's TCU talent versus Texas talent, right? Texas is a top six, seven talent program in the country. The, the reality is th- there is talent there to be deployed. That's really not in question at all. I, I think the question is whether Sonny Dykes could have come in and to the same extent that he did for TCU, where he kind of was able to like unshackle players in some way, would that have been necessarily the same sort of cultural flip at Texas where, you know, sometimes you have people who are not the coaching staff having a strong impact on what happens in those locker rooms and even on the field at times. So that would be the one question is whether you can fix some of those cultural forces in one year. But I I mean, let me put it like this. Sonny Dykes is not going five and seven in his first year. Come on. Sonny Dykes is not doing that. I don't want to do this, but I'll do it just briefly. Sonny Dykes is 53 years old. He was the head coach at Louisiana Tech. He was the head coach at Cal. He was the head coach at SMU. He has now done this at TCU. This cycle, I guess, is done in college football. But somebody, I mean, when you do this, my gosh, right? I mean, this is, if TCU, say TCU is at least good again next year. I mean, someone's going to come at him. Someone's going to come at him, right? Like if... I don't know what, but if like a top 10 opening in college football, somebody's going to come at Sonny Dykes and he's, I mean, he's certainly bit, I mean, he went, he took the Cal job and like it kind of wasn't the perfect fit for him. Right. Like, I'm just curious, like what is the future of Sonny Dykes? And I'm not trying to steal TCU's head coach, but this guy, this was a remarkable coaching job for a guy who was established. He's from a, obviously a coaching family, the son of Spike Dykes, had been there the whole time, but yet had been there on a tier or two below the highest levels of national college football. When you're the coach at Louisiana Tech, Cal, and SMU, it's not like people on a playoff show are talking about you all the time. Even if the people around you know, hey, that guy can coach. What does this, is Sonny Dykes going to be viewed as one of the 10 best coaches in college football? And if he is, what does that mean? So here's what I'll say. Um, you know, I feel like I can speak pretty well to Sonny Dykes in terms of national people. Uh, so Sonny, like you said, coach at Louisiana Tech, super successful there. Coach at SMU, super successful there. Now obviously at TCU, the most successful first year coach probably ever. Uh, he, he went job hunting when he went and took that Cal job, right? He took the first sort of big power five job that was open. And, and he had success there. They won nine games there, uh, with Jared Goff, of course. Um, ultimately though, just not a good cultural fit. Did, had disagreements with the athletic department. Obviously, look, over the last 15 years, Cal has de-emphasized football as much as any Power 5 program in the entire country. And ultimately, he was actually let go because he was trying to interview for the Baylor job and kind of trying to find his way out of Dodge, right? So I think that all this to say, Sonny Dykes is very selective about where he is going to be. Uh, I think he understands that his bread is buttered in the state of Texas. 
I think that he understands that that's where he's been the most successful. That's where he has the most ties. That's where he understands the game the most. Um, and so I don't think he's just going to, you know, if the Penn State job opened next year, I don't think that he'd just jump because it's a good job. I, you know, I mean, I think that Sonny Dykes probably could have put in, you know, more of a case at Auburn if he wanted to. And I don't think he had any interest in doing that. Uh, he signed an extension before this coaching cycle when some of these big jobs had already opened uh, across the Southeast and all that sort of stuff. So that's not to say that Sonny Dykes is guaranteed to be a TCU lifer, but he is very happy there. TCU can pay him. They're not going to pay him $10 million a year like some other places might, but he can coach there for 15 years if he wants to. He can have a stash outside the stadium right next to Gary Patterson if he wants to. Uh, and certainly I think that for him, he's sitting here. And, and by the way, again, like you said, his father, Spike Dykes, was the head coach at Texas Tech for, I believe, 13 years. He was a lifer at, at Texas Tech, uh, even though he probably had opportunities to go elsewhere. I, I don't, again, this isn't to say that Sonny Dykes is a lock to stay at TCU, but I feel like Sonny Dykes believes I can make a lot of money I can live in a great place that I enjoy being in. He he talked to me over the offseason about how one of his favorite things is he lives really close to the stadium and he can walk to work because of where he lives and because of the setup of TCU's campus and because of how good a city's Fort Worth is. And so I think he's very happy. He has relatively young kids. I think he wants to be in a place for a long time. And I, I don't think he has any desire to just go job chasing for the sake of job chasing. Now, you know, somebody offers you $10 million, you have to answer some questions potentially. But uh, but I think that Sonny Dykes would be very happy to be the coach at TCU for 10 years. Can you imagine the boosters at Texas A&M right now? They're like, <laughs> we paid what for Jimbo? <laughs> for Jimbo Fisher. <laughs> In year one, we get like... In year one. I, if Jimbo really implodes next year, right? Like that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. If Jimbo really implodes and Texas A&M is like, all right, that's it. And it's like, yeah. how about this guy? Well, this guy over here who made the national title game in year one. So, okay. So, congratulations. I, I, there's a there's great coach. There's great coaches. And it's funny to me, like with anything, it's an incredibly difficult job. Now, they're well compensated and they chose it. So, nobody needs to feel sorry for them. It's a very difficult job. There are some people who make a very difficult job look very difficult. And there are some people who make a very difficult job look kind of easy. Doesn't mean it is easy. But Sonny Dykes, I mean, he doesn't look so hard right now, right? Hey, well, we picked the wrong quarterback. Picked the wrong quarterback. It's all good. Hey, that Quentin Johnson, he's pretty good. We've got a good offensive line. Let's play this 3-3-5. We believe in it. Everybody have a good time. Good luck, boys. Let's go. And, and then meanwhile, other people are like grinding it out. Like every <laughs> single one is like, oh, I can't believe it. It's like, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I will say, I will say the one thing is, I think TCU is probably going to be an eight and four team next year. They just are going to lose a lot of talent. And the one thing about being at TCU versus being at Ohio state or being at Alabama or being at some of these other places is that you can't just assume replacing everybody, right? You can't just assume that, Oh, well we got another, we lost Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave to the draft. So we'll just add the best receiver in the entire country to replace him. Right? Like it doesn't work like that, but obviously I, I don't think that this is a, you know, for anybody who's hiring, this shouldn't be a one-year decision, right? This should be uh, an understanding of what he can do over the course of a couple years. And two, I mean, when you look at how they're recruiting relative to TCU and the guys that they're adding in as transfers, like they're going to be good again very, very soon. It just might not be right after losing your top 10 pick at receiver and your Heisman finalist quarterback and your All-American offensive lineman. I think there are some comparisons with Luke Fickle and Cincinnati where they build up to something at Cincinnati. And then this year, Cincinnati still had a very good year, but not the same level of making the playoff. And they they had two two remarkable regular seasons back-to-back. And then Luke Fickle, I think, in analyzing things, it's like, okay, long-term, long, 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 long. Can I do this frequently enough to say, well, this is the place where I want to do it? Or would I be open to going somewhere that's a cultural fit that has greater resources. And so Wisconsin has that over Cincinnati. There would be programs potentially in the SEC or maybe maybe some other places that would have that over TCU. And then maybe in the long term, would Sonny Dykes have to think about that? But in the meantime, let's talk about this TCU offense versus this Georgia defense as we start to break down the national championship game. I, When you look at, and we certainly had 
had conversations about Quentin Johnston and we talked about, hey, should they target him 14 times in the semifinal like they did in a couple games earlier this year? And I don't know what the targets were, but he had six catches for what, 160 or something? Like he did his thing. And you look at what Marvin Harrison Jr. did, especially early in the game against Georgia for Ohio State. Now they they targeted, I think Marvin Harrison was targeted on like eight of the first 20 plays or something for Ohio State. They fed that dude. He was over 100 yards like in the middle of the second quarter. And then Georgia adjusted, but you could see it sort of open up some other things. And then he gets hurt very late in the third quarter. And we see how much that negatively influenced the Ohio State offense. If Marvin Harrison Jr. stays on the field, I think Ohio State wins, but also injuries are part of the game. You saw with that Georgia secondary, good talent, maybe susceptible to some stuff, aggressive. They'll they'll take some chances at times. Keely Ringo is big and fast and can, you know, he's exactly the type of corner that you would want going up against guys like Marvin Harrison Jr. or Quentin Johnston. You know, they don't follow receivers. They play their sides of the field. Good safeties, but Ohio State was able to come out and throw the ball do you think TCU and, – and I've just – again, I just think you have to go over Georgia. I don't think you can go through Georgia's defense. I think you have to go over them or around them. Can TCU learn some things from the way Ohio State threw the ball on Georgia? And is Quentin Johnston going to be a huge problem for Georgia the way that Marvin Harrison Jr. was for Ohio State? Let's start with this this TCU offense, Georgia defense. Let's start there. Sure. So I, I do think that Quentin Johnston is a mismatch, right? Like I think that we saw it obviously in that Michigan game where, uh, where, you know, they didn't, they didn't go at him quite like, uh, like you mentioned with Marvin Harrison, but they picked their spots and Michigan really didn't have a good answer for him. And I think that similarly, you know, we, we talked about Kaylee Ringo before the semifinal game at cornerback as somebody who will take chances, but also can get got because he does take chances, right? And so I think that that needs to be a big part of the game plan for sure. Uh, TCU has other good wide receivers too, right? And so I think that that you need to you need to challenge them down the field and you need to prove that you're not afraid to do that. Obviously, they've got some great safeties, Malachi Starks, Christopher Smith. These are great players on the back end, but uh, but it's a better opportunity for you to try to create that then try to go up the middle of this Georgia defense where obviously they have their Jalen Carters and and so I, I think that certainly you need to get uh, Quentin Johnston involved early it's it's been a little bit of a hot and cold year for Quentin Johnston where he has some of these huge games and he has some of these games where because of injuries he hasn't been a factor he looks fully healthy of course in that game against Michigan and so I think that you need to find ways uh, to feed him the ball early and often the other part of this game that I think is going to be really important is I do think that TCU needs to find a way to have some threat in the run game. And it doesn't have to be pure hand the ball off and go up the middle of that defense, right? I mean, TCU is not necessarily a, a super inside the tackles team anyway. They're more trying to get to the stretch run game. But I think that they have an ability in a way that I don't think Ohio State did to challenge in the running game with uh, Kendra Miller, assuming he's healthy, which is a big assumption because uh, he went out with an injury last week uh, and he's questionable for the matchup on Monday. Amari DiMarcado came in and played pretty well for them. They also have a, a transfer from Louisiana who rushed for 700 yards uh, for Louisiana last year and Amani Bailey. And certainly Max Duggan needs to, I think, be a big part of that run game just in order to kind of keep the Georgia defense on its toes. You know, I think that the biggest strength of TCU's offense is that when they're rolling they have the ability to attack you literally every inch of the field right like I, I think that that's what they do better than anybody and because of that they have a lot of versatility in how they can attack you well this I think this matchup has to be an opportunity where you prove look we'll go down the field on the first play we'll run up uh, you know run a stretch play on the second play we'll go up the middle at times on our third play like you need to to prove that you can attack every inch of the field because I think one TCU is capable of doing that and two I, I think that puts Georgia's defense in the most difficult position that it can be. So one of the things I liked about the matchup for Ohio State against Georgia is just the, the state of the Ohio State running backs is just it was not a run game that was going to work, so don't try it. And I thought that it was the right balance of Ohio State. They did not try to just ram running backs up the middle on first down, and all of a sudden now you got two yards, now it's second and eight, and you're like you're behind the sticks all day because you're trying to find some kind of balance for what end, right? And so 
I almost think it worked in Ohio State's favor just to know they're going to lean on throwing the ball. Or would you be comfortable if TCU says, because you can't, I mean, like that's what Georgia does best. And you've made the point, and, and I, I I don't know that anyone would argue it, that like this, whatever this Georgia defense is in 2022, it's not the Georgia defense of 2021. But in terms of stopping the run, I think in a lot of ways it still is. So don't try. So don't try. Do you Can Max Duggan throw it? successfully enough, often enough, in a, and will we'll TCU dial it up, Garrett Riley, will they have enough variety to the pass game that they could go about it that way? Or do you think that the way TCU's offense operates, there needs to be balance to this, and they have to, whether it's Miller or Mercado, and again, Mercado was popped some stuff. He came in and, and kept the train running on time when Miller went out. Do they have to run it? somewhat successfully in order for the TCU offense to function? I think they do. I I mean, I think that you look at, one, their most successful games, but two, just kind of across the season, right? Like, Max Duggan isn't a quarterback who's throwing the ball 35, 40 times. Uh, He's somebody who's touching the ball certainly 40 times a game, but it's not necessarily just passing the ball. Uh, You know, you you look back at his stats, I mean, he hadn't, he's only thrown the ball more than 30 times twice since October 15th one was in that win against Baylor where they kind of had to come back at the end and one was in the Big 12 championship game where he frankly didn't have a very good game uh passing the ball so like he has to be big for sure uh in the drop back passing game and he's capable of doing that but I do think that they need to there needs to be motion. He can't be in the pocket. He's not a, he's not a pocket passer. He's somebody who does need to, even if it's just bootlegging him out at times, even if it's moving the pocket, I think that stuff would be important as well. Um, just in order to kind of add that other threat, you know, when, when Max Duggan is rolling, the best thing about this TCU offense is you truly have to cover all 11 players on the field because you don't know what Max Duggan's going to do with it. Right? Like I, I think that, um, you know, obviously this is a, a lengthy comparison to go, but like, you know, it is it is in some ways Tebow-ish, right? Like where it's not necessarily that you want Tim Tebow to stand back in the pocket and try to complete passes. You want him doing stuff. You want him challenging uh, defenders. You want defenders to be scared of where he is on the field. And then you let the other talent kind of take their place as well. So uh, I, w- I would try to have a decent amount of, of structured movement in the offense, whether it's reads, whether it's run pass options. Uh, but, but I do think that they need to be, I, I don't think that they can sit back and CJ Stroud it and just kind of launch the ball around the field. That's just not the kind of game that Max Duggan is comfortable playing. So then I don't love that for TCU because yeah, I do no, think for sure. the, the best, the best style of offense to try to deal with his Georgia defense is a pocket passer who's going to stand back there, move enough in the pocket to be able to sort of stay on his platform when the rush is coming. But I thought I thought Ohio State from that standpoint was the right style of offense to try to attack Georgia. And I just feel like some of the more athletic mobile quarterbacks that Georgia has faced this year, whether it's Anthony Richardson, whether it's Will Levis, um, Hendon Hooker, I feel like they've had pretty good success because no matter how athletic or how much, how good of a runner you are as a quarterback, you're not more athletic than the 11 guys that Georgia has chasing you. So then don't get chased now. Cause I, and I do think, you know, again, this ongoing discussion about CJ Stroud running the ball and the 27 yard run he had to set up. That was the biggest play of the final drive. I almost think it was like a two year long con of I'm not going to run. <laughs> and then right, that's why right, he right. ran. Like you have to, like they were not worried about it. So the whole thing of like CJ Stroud needs to run more. It's like, well, I just always thought if a defense is prepared at all for him to run, it's not going to work. And then when they're like, nope, he's not going to do it. Then he was like, aha, now I'll do it. So that worked in that situation. But Max Duggan, like on the board, when Glenn Schumann and Will Muschamp are like writing down, what do we have to worry about? Max Duggan, like doing some stuff with his legs is like pretty high on the list, right? Whether it's called runs or scrambles and George is going to be ready for that. And then that part of it, I don't, because it goes back to sort of the conversation we had on the Apple podcast show of in the end, Georgia and Ohio State was a matchup of teams that recruit at a high level from a talent standpoint, and Michigan and TCU, from a high school talent standpoint, don't recruit at that level. And so actually, that was advantageous to TCU, maybe even if people didn't talk about that enough before the game. And now there's a bunch of five stars chasing Max Duggan in a way that he has not faced this year. No, for sure. I I, I think that 
one of the questions that I'm going to be very interested in is you're going to have a combination because I, I, I think you're right. You look back at that Tennessee game and Georgia was able to take that passing game away in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Tennessee's offense is built so much around scheming guys open. Whereas I think that one thing that I'll be curious about for TCU heading into this matchup is I think that they have that athletic quarterback, but they also have individual receivers who can win one-on-one matchups against Georgia defensive backs, which I don't think that Florida had. I don't think that Kentucky had, Um, you, you know, obviously Tennessee had it in terms of pure talent, but that's not really what their system is. You know, they, they were kind of comfortable to, to run their system and Georgia was fine to sit back in zone and kind of know that they could react with relative speed uh, to one-on-one matchups. So I, I think that that's going to be a big part of the game is just, you know, can Quentin Johnson and also can some of these other guys, can Darius Davis, can Tay Barber win some of these one-on-one matchups in the intermediate part of the field and give Max Duggan a safety blanket? Because like you said, uh, the Georgia defense triggers as fast as any defense ever. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's just what they do is when they see that you are trying to make something happen, they're coming for you. And so I think that, that the question is going to be for Garrett Riley and for Max Duggan can you use that momentum against them? You know, that that quick trigger that they kind of come at you with. Can you create opportunities where you get them to trigger and then you kind of build pass plays off of that? I think I think that's a tough question, right? And and I do think that Max Duggan, like you said, is going to have to do some dealing from the pocket, which is something that we saw. I mean, we saw Max Duggan made a huge throw uh, on sort of a, a post route in the in the game against Michigan that really set up a touchdown, right? Like he can make some of those throws. I just, you know, the big thing is obviously he has not faced a defense quite like this in terms of the pure athleticism and the closing speed also of these defensive backs. This was a semifinal round filled with explosive plays. Georgia and Ohio State both had a bunch of explosive plays. As, as again, as you talked about on the on the Apple show, Michigan's almost entire offense was built on explosive plays. Can TCU be explosive enough? Do they have to be explosive against this Georgia offense? Or, or can TCU march? Can they march consistently to get into the 30s without dropping some 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 huge plays in there? I think that we are going to figure out early because remember, uh, Michigan obviously doesn't have the defense that Georgia has, but TCU had a 62% rushing success rate against Michigan, which is like 90th percentile, right? And so I think TCU is going to try to test it earlier. They're going to try to figure out, look, can we get any success going against this? Can we march down the field, right? Because the, the last game against Michigan, Michigan was the team that was wholly reliant on explosive plays and TCU was the team that marched down the field. And so I, I think that TCU is going to try early to figure out, look, can we be methodical or do we need to kind of open the bag? I, I think that they don't want to open the bag right from the start because the thing is, right, when you when you hit some of those chunk plays early, those plays are probably gone later in the game. So I think that they'd like to kind of keep them in their back pocket as long as possible. So I, I think that TCU is going to be able to have some success moving the ball methodically. Uh, but, you know, if, if they I, there's certainly a world where Georgia just shuts all of that down and they have to be explosive. And I think that's a very difficult place for TCU to be, even though they are the most explosive team in the college football playoff. That's that side of the ball. I I think it is potentially a tough slog for TCU just with the way that things match up. Let's flip it and let's talk TCU defense and Georgia offense. We'll do it right after this in the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Doug and Shahan back. I don't, you have to factor it in somehow, Shahan, that Michigan had these opportunities that the fumble on the goal line, they didn't cash in the first red zone thing. Like there, there were some massive Michigan mistakes. JJ McCarthy got loose as JJ McCarthy is wont to do. As I've, you know, the idea with Georgia, Georgia had Stetson Bennett through that one pick to steal chambers, made a good play on a wheel route covering the receiver. And then like the next couple drives, Georgia like locked it down. It was like, all right, we're not going to let, we're not going to let you get, out of control here. And then at the end of the game, by the time they got back to winning time, Stetson Bennett was on point and they're able to march for the go ahead score in the final two and a half minutes. It felt Michigan's mistakes mattered a lot in the Michigan TCU game. And I guess it surprised me to some degree because I just think Michigan is a well coached team. But 
They also had a quarterback who was a little bit boomer bust. Stetson Bennett has that in him, but as soon as he starts to bust, they pull him back. They want the boom. They get you, they get like the BU, but they don't let him get to the ST, right? He's a boomer boo quarterback. He's not a, doesn't get all the way to bust because Todd Monken puts the reins on and says, we're going to slow this thing down. Let's trot for a while. No more galloping. TCU was able to, to, to use that to against Michigan, Michigan's mistakes. I just think Stetson Bennett at 25 years of age and has been around the block more than a few times is not going to do the same kind of things. And so I think, again, that's a little bit of a tough ask for the TCU defense. And then also, I thought maybe TCU would had trouble with the Michigan run game. And it turns out they were awesome against the Michigan run game. And Georgia profiles two tight ends, and maybe Darnell Washington won't play, so maybe they won't use two tight ends quite as much. But like the profile is similar, but the way Georgia attacks is very different than Michigan. They throw the ball a lot more. Obviously, we know they throw it to running backs and tight ends. I don't know if that's great for TCU. So again, I don't, there are parts of this matchup, Shahan, that I was wrong in thinking TCU would have trouble with what Michigan did offensively. So maybe I'm wrong again, but I think it's a little bit of a tough matchup for this TCU defense. What do you think it's a tough matchup for the TCU defense? Or do you think, no, 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 they can, they can handle this style. Well, to, to turn it back to that Fiesta Bowl for just a second, I think that, you know, you talk about Michigan got a little loose. They, they started, you know, making mistakes, which is something that they don't normally do. I think that that is 100% due to the fact that TCU took them out of what they wanted to do. And they had to, they had to open the bag. They had to take shots. They had to do things that they weren't comfortable doing, which frankly is just relying on JJ McCarthy's arm. You know, after, after that first rush of the game for Donovan Edwards, he averaged like 2.6 yards per carry after that 54 yard run. So, TCU managed to take the run game away. Now it's because they dedicated a lot of help to doing that, of course. And so that's going to be, I think, a big question mark when you go against a team that I think is more comfortable passing the ball in Georgia. But I do think that they have the ability to have success against this Georgia run game. Now, I also expect that they're going to dedicate less help because, uh, you know, we've talked about it all season. This Georgia running game is a good unit. They don't necessarily have special running backs. They don't necessarily have a guy who's going to destroy you in the running game. Kenny McIntosh is a really good player, but in some ways he's more comfortable being a receiver than he is being a running back at times. And so I actually think that that works a little bit in TCU's favor, that this is a team that wants to pass the ball. I think that TCU is very comfortable playing against teams that want to, to pass the ball with regularity. The big question for me, and let's just assume that Darnell Washington plays in this game, because I think that he is a huge X factor heading into this matchup. I don't know who TCU covers these tight ends with. I, I don't think that they have a good matchup for them. I, and that's the point. That's the point of having great tight ends like that. But I don't necessarily know that they have a guy, right? Like at, at linebacker, I actually thought that Johnny Hodges, who was a Navy transfer, and Jamoy Hodge, these are pretty big linebackers like these are kind of big 10 linebackers in some ways I felt like they matched up pretty well in terms of clogging holes against Michigan I don't want either of those guys running after Brock Bowers right like like I think that that's a difficult position for TCU to be in so they're gonna find an answer they have you know, 10 days of practice in order to find an answer. But that's going to be the big question for me is who do you put on these tight ends? Do you put a safety on them? I mean, certainly their corners are too small in order to line up against these tight ends. I expect that you're going to have safety help and maybe even bracket Brock Bowers. But uh, but that's going to be the biggest question is who do you have guarding that guy? So Georgia had seven guys go over at least 20 receiving yards against Ohio State, all seven of them had a reception of at least 20 yards. It's like, it's remarkable. This is all chunk plays, man. It was all chunk plays. You know, their leading receiver, uh, Arian Smith, had 129 receiving yards, and it's because he had a 76-yard touchdown <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the comeback that was a one-play 76-yard touchdown drive because the Ohio State guy fell down. So I didn't think Brock Bowers destroyed Ohio State. Four for 64 was doable. I mean, you'd, you'd take that and say, okay, but they just were able to spread the ball around to a variety of guys. Again, Kenny McIntosh out of the backfield is really, really, really good. Um, AD Mitchell was back to some de- degree and they had missed him during the year three for 43 
it it is the again the way they dial it up, the way they spread the ball around. TCU's defense was so good, right? They, it's been so good. Is it, is it? But statistically, it's not right. Statistically, they're in the 60s or whatever, like nationally for what they do in uh, EPA and that kind of thing. 50s or 60s, like it's it's fine. <laughs> And again, like we can talk about we can talk about the success of the TCU defense against Michigan, but they still gave up 45. And Michigan also had, you know, another seven that was probably should have been on the board with the the catch that was overruled and they fumbled the goal line. I don't know, man. I I just I think that I, I guess by now people know the Georgia offense is really good. And it's not even about just Brock Bowers and the time. It's, it's just the way they put it together. Is this a good TCU defense now? What was the, what's the adjective you would use to describe a TCU defense that in EPA per play going into the postseason was in the 50s, gives up 45 to Michigan, but yet sort of stopped Michigan from doing the thing that it wanted to do? Because the one part of this is, is that Michigan – is very good at what it does, but it is more one-dimensional than a lot of very good teams. Especially nobody that at Michigan's level runs it. No, no program as good as Michigan runs it or relies on running the ball as much as Michigan. And then the whole point was Ohio State tried to stop the run. They give up big plays in the pass game. TCU did that to some degree as well. It's just TCU was able to outscore Michigan in a way that Ohio State wasn't. I don't know, man. I love what TCU did against Michigan, but I'm worried about the TCU defense against Georgia. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, to, to go back to Michigan for a second, it, it would be weird if you used like an entire season to help develop part of your game that maybe wasn't as good. But I don't know. I mean, I'm not, a, I don't get paid $10 million to coach. Uh, but no, I, I think, I think the thing that we have to say about the TCU defense is that they are situationally excellent. They are very, mm. very good at taking away the thing that you need at the time that you need it. Right. Whereas, you know, I, I think that even, um, you know, for example, I point to the the Ohio State Michigan game and Ohio State, right, like down to down was doing some nice stuff. But then like any time it mattered, Ohio State's defense got beat. And I think that TCU is the opposite of that. I think that TCU is willing to give up a couple of plays, willing to give up a couple of yards. But th- for example, right, they're like. We understand that Michigan's going to be able to get some yards and some points on us, but we're not going to let it happen in an efficient way and the way that Michigan wants to live, which is, of course, running the ball. You know, we'll we'll deal with with J.J. McCarthy having to throw bombs all day and maybe give up a couple of them. And, and by the way, like, again, you look at you look at the success that he had. A lot of it was on like trick and gimmick plays like they were explosive plays that that uh, Michigan really had to kind of like pull out of their bag at the last moment. Like they didn't have consistent success at all running or passing the ball. And so I think that that's what TCU is going to try to do in this game. They're going to try to say, we're going to try to take these tight ends out of the game one way or another, right? Because there's such a safety blanket for Stetson Bennett. There's such a, you know, you know that any given play, one of these two tight ends is going to be available. And by the way, I, I think that it's also relevant that when Darnell Washington went out of the Ohio State game, that's when Georgia's offense struggled is because they were struggling to adjust without having these two game breakers in the game that you knew could catch the ball at any given time. So uh, the big question for me, I think, with this TCU defense, let's just say that they're able to limit Brock Bowers and let's say that they're able to limit Darnell Washington. I think the game's going to come down to, can you both do that and still have the safety help in the running game? Or are you going to get run over a little bit? And the other part of it is, you know, TCU's cornerbacks are substantially better than Ohio State's cornerbacks. Obviously, Travis Hodges Tomlinson won the Thorpe Award as the best defense back in the country. Again, probably wouldn't have been my pick, but he's an All-America type player. Josh Newton on the other side, I think, has been close to as good as as Trey Hodges Tomlinson as well. And so I think that the big difference between what Georgia did in in the last game and what they'll do in this game is I don't expect the Arian Smith play, right? Like I think that Lad McConkey is going to be a non-factor in this football game because I think that TCU has corners have the ability to take him away. Now, 
you mentioned it. So many players in this game caught a pass and caught a pass of longer than 20 yards. So like you gotta, you gotta be fundamentally sound. You, you gotta find ways to, uh, to line up guys who aren't going to get beat, uh, and, and do that all while trying to still scheme away the tight ends as well. That's the hard part. And also Georgia can run the ball at a pretty high level. They can do everything is the point is the point. But, um, I, I think that. TCU will be able to do things to make Georgia feel uncomfortable offensively, even if they're still productive, if that makes sense. Let's make our picks here. And again, people have to respect us because we were so on it. You're a Texas expert. I don't know if I'm an Ohio State expert, but I've been around Ohio State a long time. You picked TCU to beat Michigan. I picked the Georgia-Ohio State score exactly right. So listen to us, people. So let's make a comparison that maybe isn't fair. But I was at the Final Four National Championship game in college basketball when Butler played Duke the first time Butler made the national title game. And my angle on press row as Gordon Hayward released that 40-footer at the buzzer. I'm an unbiased observer. Sean, I don't know if you realize that. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I stood halfway up out of my seat when that ball was in the air because I was right in line. I was right behind Hayward as he shot it. And I had the angle. So I had the angle on it the whole way. And I started to stand up and I said, it's good. Cause like, it was like, I thought it was in. And then it like, it hit the backboard and hit the rim and bounced out. So in that game, Butler, right. Underdog story. Butler goes up against Duke loses by two. And I thought they were going to make a 40 footer, the buzzer to win it. Butler goes back to the national title game the next year. Remarkable. And Butler shoots 19% from the field against UConn and loses 53-41. So my question is like, which, so if TCU's Butler, I don't think it's terrible because Butler's good. Like, like but Butler isn't like George Mason or whatever. Butler Butler had real, you know, Gordon Hayward, right? They had, and then they didn't have Gordon Hayward the next year. It's about Shelvin Mack and they had, they had like real dudes. It was like an underdog team and that turned out to have real dudes. So if, if that's a comparison of TCU, which one of those results are you getting? Are you getting... <laughs> Are you getting hanging in till the bitter end, tooth and nail, or are you getting shooting 19% from the field and you only score 41 points and lose by 12? And you were up at halftime, you get blown out in the second half, and it's not really competitive at the end. I'm <laughs> worried about TCU here. I'm worried about TCU because I think there's two things here. One is Michigan, as much as TCU forced Michigan to be an explosive offense and took away their bread and butter, I mean, my gosh. The guy's butt was probably in the end zone. That probably should have been a touchdown. The, like the things that happened at Mich- to Michigan and that Michigan did to itself, how that's your play, like a little quick handoff to like the fullback linebacker guy, like that's your play. Like, come on. Michigan got some bad luck and then also shot itself in the, fucking t- in the foot. And TCU took advantage, but like that seemed really necessary for TCU to win. And then I think Georgia was, you know, in some ways lucky, right? 50-yard field goal, it's not a guarantee, but it's a coin toss of, of who's going to win in that moment. So TC, uh, uh, Georgia has some luck there, but I think they went up against an Ohio State team that that's the style of offense that's built to attack Georgia. I don't think TCU's as built for this matchup. It doesn't mean they're not built for the big stage, but I don't think TCU's as built for this matchup. And when we think about the talent discrepancy, I think it was a really good point made on the Apple Podcast show that, again, Michigan's good, but Michigan's just raw talent is not the same as Ohio State and Georgia's. So TCU then, when it got in a game like that, could hang. And now they're going to play Georgia. And I think we might see that. That could show up in a really big way and be like, oh, this is the difference between a team that recruits like the number one recruiting team in the country and a team that recruits like in the thirties or forties. And that's going to show up here. So I don't like the matchup for TCU. It doesn't mean I don't like TCU, but I did like the matchup for Ohio state stylistically. And then I think I was wrong. I can see where now I was wrong about TCU, Michigan. So I'm going to take 41, 26 Georgia. And I'm wondering if it might be, more of a blowout than that. But that is over the total. And that is Georgia covering the 13 and a half. And I think it's possible that by like the middle of the second quarter, we're just like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a bit too much of an ask. TCU has beaten some excellent teams this year and they are an excellent team, but yeah, this is another 
an animal of a different color and it's too much. And here we are. And it's more like, again, 28-17, 28-15. Those are the margins of the last four national title games. I'm wondering if we might be living in that world again. So I've got 41-26, Georgia. What do you got? Let me ask you one question before I make my pick. So you watched Ohio State play against Georgia and you watched Ohio State play against Michigan. Like, what was the difference between Ohio State scoring 41 on Georgia and 23 on Michigan? I think indoors mattered a lot. I think it wasn't their rival and that mattered. And um, I just think they had a better game plan. And I don't know that it was a ton about the individual players on Michigan and Georgia or the way that those defenses attack you. I think it had more to do with the situation and the environment and the month off and the intangibles and the motivation and Ohio State letting it loose as opposed to maybe being a little tight and that kind of thing. And Ohio State just like acknowledging like we're not even going to try to run like that kind of thing, which I think freed them up a little bit. So I think I know what you're asking, but I don't know that I think I learned much about Michigan or Georgia from that as much as I learned about Ohio State. So I'm not sure how to then apply that Michigan-Georgia comparison to TCU since they are going to go through the same thing, which is play Michigan first, play Georgia second. What do you think? Yeah, well, I I think my big question is, look, Michigan has multiple NFL players in their front, right? They've got Mozzie Smith, who's going to play at the next level. They've got Mike Morris, who's going to play at the next level. Both those guys were All-America contenders and and are huge, huge players who move super well. Uh, They're they're not Jalen Carter. I'm not saying that they are, but like they are really, really good. And TCU completely took them out of the game with their physicality. Now, again, Georgia's not going to be taken out of the game. I want to be very, very clear about that. Uh, they've got, just got too many guys. They also rotate too much, so they're going to be fresh. My question is, is that we headed into last week with the assumption, like truly the assumption, that TC was not going to be able to hang from a physicality perspective. And on both sides of the ball, TC was the more physical team than Michigan. Now, Georgia is going to be physical and also explosive in a way that Michigan just isn't. So that's going to be a difference. I, I think that we're going to have to ask the question of like, are, you know, plays that maybe turn into 12 yard plays against Michigan are maybe six yard plays against Georgia. But is it still success? That's kind of my question that I'd be asking heading into this game. Will they still be able to have successful plays? Cause again, I, I, I am. It's hard for me, again, to, to know what exactly to take from the Michigan game because the the conventional logic so much was that TC was not going to be able to hang with the physicality. And they did. They did in a big way. Georgia's a different challenge. I, I don't know if I want to go this far, but it's like Georgia's almost an offensive team at this point with a really good defense as opposed to a mm. defensive team like they were last year that was good enough on offense, right? Like Georgia's biggest mismatches might be offensive at this point. That doesn't mean they're not awesome defensively, but like they are pretty special offensively as well. Uh, and, and also very versatile. Like I said, they can, they can beat you at any matchup. So I think first of all, we get into a ball control possession game on both sides. I think that both teams will be able to do that a little bit. So I expect a slightly lower scoring game. But I actually do think that TCU is going to be able to put together some consistent drives. Uh, I, I do think they're going to be able to put together the nine play into the red zone drive. And then it's just kind of going to be, look, you've got this great dynamic quarterback. You've got good tight ends. You've got a great receiver in Quentin Johnston. Can you convert these red zone opportunities into touchdowns? That was something I was optimistic about when they played Michigan. I'm less optimistic about it against Georgia, but I don't think that it's off the table. So 13 is way too big for me. I don't think it's going to turn into a blowout. Uh, I'm going to take Georgia to win, but I'm going to take I thought it. you picked TCU on the CBS thing. My official pick at TCU is still TCU, but that's more of a, we got to ride with them. We got to ride with them at this point. Oh, I was getting all excited for you to pick TCU on this show. <laughs> I want the TCU pick too. You know what? All right. Okay. You know what? Fine. 
Fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm going to go TCU 28-24 to in a relatively low-scoring game, very few possessions. It's going to be a mistake by one of these two quarterbacks, right? Max Duggan and Stetson Bennett are incredible college quarterbacks who are also like not CJ Stroud and Bryce Young at all, right? Like they're not going to be guys who are starting in the NFL in a few years. Uh, and so I think that, I, I think that both of them are susceptible. We saw that a little bit at times, you know, Stetson Bennett did not look all that great to be honest uh, against Ohio state until the fourth quarter. He's dealing with a, what appears to be some sort of ankle sprain as well. And I think that if his mobility is limited as well, that's a huge deal for Georgia. I think that his mobility is such a huge part of their game plan. So I, I think the pathway for TCU is you have to put together some consistent drives. You have to find ways to keep the ball out of Georgia's offense's hands. And, and I think that you need to find a way to both take away Brock Bowers while also not giving up against the run. So I trust that their coaching staff is going to do a great job figuring out whatever that is. Uh, Obviously, they don't have the advantage of 137,000 analysts who are watching every special teams play to let Kirby Smart know when he needs to take a touch, uh, take a timeout. But I I still think this is a really good staff. Uh, Screw it. It's it's a TCU 28-24. Yes. That's what I wanted. That makes me happy. That warms my heart. I do think the issue with TCU, I think to your point, did out physical Michigan. Ohio State didn't out physical Georgia. They just made it a game not about physicality. So that's a very different animal. So like, and I think that's the the, the levels of Michigan's physicality versus Georgia's physicality. And I do think uh, it doesn't mean you don't have to be tough, but like down to down, it's like you're not just ramming heads against each other. You're trying to you know, do things with your receivers. That, and again, it just needs to be situational. You don't, you don't need to, if you're TC, you don't need to, uh, again, you don't need to arm wrestle every single play, right? It's the question is on every third play, can you have some success being physical? Can you, can you create a five yard running play, right? Like that sort of stuff I think will be very important just to keeping Georgia's defense honest and giving you opportunities. Ohio State had that huge pick. Um, Georgia only punted twice. In that yeah. game, they didn't punt in the first half. So, like, they just were kind of able to do what, what they wanted to do offensively for most of it. And that's what Todd Munkin and Stetson Bennett do with that offense. Like, we just, more often than not, we can do what we want to do. And again, they, they had more explosive plays when I, than I expected against Ohio State. But the idea that sort of like down to down, they were sort of in control of what was going on, that did not surprise me. And I, I think that could be a problem for anybody. For anybody that faces George, I get. I mean, they've had some weird games. They almost lost to Missouri. They only scored 16 against Kentucky. I get it. But like in ideal situations in an ideal game, I don't know that it's much about your defense. I think it's more about how Todd Monken's going to move these pieces around the chessboard and make life really difficult for you. So in the end, I've got 41-26 Georgia. Shahan has 28-24 TCU. We hope you guys uh, guys enjoy the national title game. We'll be back next week to talk about what happened, to put the season in context, to maybe spin a little bit forward as we think about what will be the final year of the four-team playoff next season. But for now, if you want to go try the Apple podcast, with lessons learned from the semifinals, that look back a little bit more. Here we wanted to look forward to what's going to happen on Monday night. We appreciate you guys making us part of your week. For Shahan J. Haraja, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.